0: Welcome, beloved listeners, to another episode of Late Night Live... ...coming to you from Gadigal Land. This morning at 7.30am, I place myself in the tender care of a Dr. Andrew Shang. It's something we do once a month. And uh, he then delicately thrusts a needle into my left eye... ...and a little later, another needle into my right. Why does he do this? Well, I have macular degeneration and Andrew is doing his best to delay it. So, as you can imagine, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it might be like to be completely blind. It's something we've been taught to fear above almost anything else, from the biblical depiction of the blind leading the blind into a pit to Baudelaire's uh, poetic rendering of the blind people as uh, like mannequins the picture. Painted of blindness in Western culture is almost always one of tragedy. The only exception seem to be if you accomplish something incredible like climbing Everest without sight. But just like there's a whole spectrum of blindness, there's a range of experiences of what it means to be blind. 30, 40 years ago, I uh, had the honour of interviewing John Hull, about his magnificent book, Touching the Rock, about what he described as descending into deep blindness. And it's also an issue I've discussed with Oliver Sacks, who, of course, writes about blindness, among other phenomena, in his masterpiece, The Man Who Mistook His Wife's Head for a Hat. Now, tonight, we're going to hear from two guests who were both experiencing the gradual loss of sight and who, uh, who want to challenge our myths and misconceptions of, yes, blindness. Andrew Leland joins us first. Andrew is a writer, audio producer, editor and teacher, currently living in Western Massachusetts, and his book is The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. Andrew, a warm welcome to our little wireless program. When did you first start to realize there was a problem with your eyes?
1: Uh, it was around the time that I was in high school. Um, I was probably in my mid-teenage years, and as one does in those years, I uh, began to explore the world more independently and was going out into the hillsides. So I was living in New Mexico at the time. It was a a kind of high desert landscape. And my friends and I would go out onto the, the sort of hillsides to, you know, misbehave a little bit. And I just, I noticed how much easier navigating those darkened hillsides was for my friends than it was for me. And it was, it was a confusing thing. It wasn't obvious what was wrong because uh, vision is such a subjective thing. And, you know, similarly in movie theaters, uh, somebody would jump up to go to the bathroom or get get a soda and i would just think how are they doing that so well you know maybe i'm not trying hard enough am i not looking hard enough and it, and so it took me several years of these experiences accumulated before i realized maybe maybe there's actually a medical reason for this and i and i I self-diagnosed and then eventually was diagnosed by a retinal specialist with with rp or retinitis pigmentosa what is that it is a degenerative retinal disease um so there are rods and cones in your retina and with RP, the rods begin to decay first, and then eventually the cones as well. So so the, the prognosis is really night blindness at first, which is what I was experiencing on those dark hillsides, because the rod cells are responsible for uh, light adaption, for dark adaption rather, to be able to see in low light situations, as well as peripheral vision. So at first it manifests as night blindness, often in teenage years, and then eventually as the years go on, gradual tunnel vision, so I would leave people hanging for high fives I would you know stumble over you know bump my shins into fire hydrants and and then now at uh, the point I'm at now it's like looking through a very narrow tube like imagine a toilet paper tube or something that that you're just peering through or even smaller perhaps um, so I can still see a lot uh if it's if it's if it's well lit enough and it's in the right place.
0: I have to go back to your own night blindness. What you were up to, of course, was experimenting with psychedelics, something that uh, (laughs) Oliver Sacks did extensively, as I'm sure you know. So your eyesight has gradually declined as you've gotten older, which was exactly as predicted.
1: That's right. Yeah. The doctor told me when I was diagnosed in my late teens that it would be very, very gradual. And then when I hit middle age, it would accelerate. And My doctor more recently has disabused me of that a little bit. She said, actually, the rate is the same, but I've thought a lot about this, and and the conclusion I've come to is that they're both right in a sense, and and I think there's a financial metaphor that I find useful in thinking about it, which is, you know, there's a great Hemingway line, uh, how did you go bankrupt Uh, gradually and then all at once? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if the rate of withdrawals is constant, if you've got a lot of money in the bank, you don't really feel it. But now that I've got, you know, relatively a few hundred dollars in the visual bank, uh, that steady rate of decline feels a lot more precipitous.
0: Andrew, when did you decide you wanted to start documenting
1: the experience and also why? There were a few milestones along the way as my vision gradually declined and the major one, the one that really trumps all of them, is beginning to use the white cane. Because as soon as I produce that white cane, regardless of what my my visual level is, the world treats you differently. And I noticed that on the street, strangers interacting with me differently, you know, people in stores, and then even my family members had reactions to it. And that experience of really like the social dimension of blindness just got thrust to the fore in my life and 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 didn't leave the fore really the longer i used the cane the more these experiences confounded me and that's when i became really interested in writing because it felt almost existential like i, I it was something that was really interfering with with who i felt like i was who i understood myself to be and, and it felt like this project of, of exploring the world of blindness, understanding blindness, understanding the misconceptions about it, including primarily my misconceptions about it, felt like a really urgent task. Your book shares a title with a wonderful story by H.G. Wells, The Country of the Blind, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, I I read that story pretty early in my research into sort of cultural representations of blindness and it it stuck with me i think primarily because that story is about a figure who i identified with which is to say that's this explorer named nunez who is on an andean mountain expedition and there's a landslide and he gets separated from his group and then falls into this proverbial forgotten valley you know that's that's existed apart from the rest of civilization for hundreds of years the country of the blind where uh this this civilization has existed without sight for generations their their language has no word for blind and it's their entire village is built for blindness and and he and he enters it with this sort of swaggering confidence like oh in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king i will i will you know this very colonial attitude i will subjugate these people and he quickly realizes that he is the minority he's the marginalized one and they hold all the power because the world is built for them nonetheless he has the choice to leave where you will be
0: in the blind world to stay
1: precisely yeah short of some uh, medical breakthrough uh, i am I will be naturalized as a citizen in the country of the blind. (laughs) Okay. While we're on the topic of uh, literature, how do
0: you think popular culture affected your perception of what it would be like
1: to be blind? Oh, profoundly. Um, It profoundly affected it. Because I think, like everyone, you know, blindness is spoken of as a tragedy, and um, you know, God forbid—that's that's the thing. You know, they're there, but for the grace of God, go I. Uh, so, so I think I just looked at it as this death sentence, really. Um, you know, I think depictions from 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 religious literature, or even just like you know, in, in the way people talk about it, like, oh, I'd rather go blind than you know that happened to me. Um, and so, I looked at it really as like this tragic thing that was befalling me, and it took. The work of finding actual blind people who live every day with blindness and through blindness to, to to kind of start to deconstruct that image of blindness that I had received. Well, you make the point that you discovered that unlike in books and
0: movies, the life of a blind person is never fully or even
1: predominantly defined by their blindness. Yeah, this is something that I think sighted people have a lot of trouble wrapping their heads around. It just, it sounds, I think, I think I've, I've encountered a lot of skepticism to that idea, even as I've found it so convincing, B- because I think people just can't conceive of blindness as incidental, which is something that I've heard a lot of blind people argue. And, you know, they, I think the argument is that, of course, blindness is an inconvenience. Nobody is saying that it's easier to, you know, find a bus stop, get on the bus and, and get to work and then, you know, work on a computer, without vision, but but the reality is that with with the proper accommodations, you know, with, with an accessible website and a bus that might announce the, the bus stops and so on, all of those things are eminently doable. And when things work smoothly, just like all of us, you know, those identities, whether it's you know, your gender, whether it's your race, you know, any any identity marker can kind of fall into the background when things are functioning smoothly.
0: Let's go back to the white cane, which has been a symbol. Of, of blindness for well, for centuries, and uh, you made the point that people treat you differently if they see you tapping away with your uh, with your cane but and mm-hmm. even your wife, I understand, saw your cane as well, a, a sign of vulnerability.
1: absolutely. yeah, yeah, vulnerability is the word. and I hadn't really spoken with her about it I I, I you know even as I brought the cane out, it was something that we hadn't discussed and so so i kind of surprised her with it almost in this in this at this dinner one night when we were out with friends and um and, and yeah and i think that was unfair of me in a way because i wasn't talking about it i was ashamed of it and then i allowed her to kind of have like the worst reaction just by by springing it on her rather than discussing it but but yeah the reaction that people have is I think predominantly that, oh, this person is helpless. I ought to help this person. And I think as a blind person out in the world, it's very upsetting when you're just going about your business. You know where you are. You're on the street where you live. You're on the street where you work. And somebody's like talking to you as though you're an alien who's just landed on a on a strange <laughs> planet or, or a child who's lost from his parents. You know, yeah. it's, it's infuriating. I'm talking to Andrew
0: Leland, writer
1: extraordinaire,
0: about his experiences of blindness Decades ago, I ran the uh, United Nations campaign in the Year of the Disabled Person here in mm. Australia, and uh, our theme was Break Down the Barriers. Many of those barriers, I think, have been broken down, but there's still some to go, aren't there?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's it's a funny dynamic here in the U.S. where in 1990, uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, was passed as this this really landmark legislation um breaking down many barriers and yet i hear lots of disabled activists talk about how that can't be the end and and even with the ADA there's 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 businesses uh, and universities and companies that just just ignore ignore accessibility or you know or you know you'll you'll make a website accessible but then you'll update it and then suddenly it stops being accessible and it, and i find that accessibility and those breaking down of barriers it has to be a constant practice it's not just something that that one can solve it, it has to be every new building every new curriculum every new institution needs to think about disability from the outset
0: you've discovered that only 16 percent of blind americans have college degrees and uh, more than a fifth don't finish high school
1: yeah i mean as someone who is going blind later in life i'm i'm in my 40s um that's one thing that i think about a lot is is the privilege that I have of getting my education as a sighted person, because all the blind people I've interviewed who have gone through their schooling as blind people, it's just a radically different experience you know person after person tells me the story oh i went to the math teacher and said i want to take your calculus class and they said i have no idea how i would teach this to a blind person please go take some other class you know and that's just a such a common experience and it's tragic And and it not only does it deny people access to education but i think it creates this sense accumulated over years that one ought to just you know Cane chairs, or or ties straw to brooms, and you know, enter the blind trades, and that you know, math or or science or or whatever one wants to pursue isn't really open to one. Andrew, there's a, an argument, perhaps a
0: myth, that as you go blind, your other senses intensify. Do you find that's true? Uh,
1: yeah, you know, I, I I get this question a lot, and I've thought about it a lot, and I think there's two there's two parts to it. One is that it is a myth you know i think if if you sat down and gave a blind person a hearing test and and tested you know what decibel level they were able to detect versus a sighted person there's not a special power that the blind person has it's super hearing but the reality is and i think your friend oliver sacks would agree here that that when one orients oneself to a different modality you know when one is using one's hearing so much more as a blind person uh, one is more attuned to it, so you pick up that signal to noise uh, more effectively. And so, you know, there's an, I, I I love the example of a blind person. I read, um, you know, they they said I'm standing waiting for a cab with a bunch of other sighted people. I'm going to hear that cab come up first, not because I can I have super hearing, but just because they're all staring at their phones and I'm more attuned to the this auditory environment. John Hull made the fascinating point to me
0: in our conversation all those years ago that uh, mm. he used hearing as a form of sight. He could mm. he could judge whether the rain was falling on concrete or grass, for example, quite mm. subtle things, but they
1: did in fact aid his perception. Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've begun to have that experience as well, uh, and I've noticed it with touch as as well. You know, I, I um my vision even though it's it's useful, I have some acuity, it's very inefficient for me to use it. And so like, for example, if I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking something, I've had to retrain myself not to just scan the countertop for a knife, but just use my fingers. And, I, and I've found that my fingers are looking for it. You know, I mean, sighted people use that image all the time, right? I'm looking for it and you might be looking for it visually, you might be padding around for it. And uh those divisions between the modalities have started to fade for me a bit and I and I look for things with my hands all the time and it doesn't feel strange. Andrew as
0: part of uh, this journey you you uh, attend the uh, the National Convention of the largest mm-hmm. blindness organization in the U.S. Tell me what was that like?
1: It was a profound experience. I I just I somewhat impulsively just bought a ticket. Uh, very, very early on in my journey into this world. And I arrived in Florida to this convention center where there were 3000 blind people gathered. And the moment I walked through the doors of the convention center, I realized that I was suddenly in the majority that I, you know, having lived for years as the only person with a white cane in the in the airport in the bus in the in the coffee shop suddenly there were a handful of sighted people but really like we outnumbered them and there was this sudden sense of a of a first person plural that like i was a part of a group and that i could sort of think of myself as a we and i can't tell you how moving that was and you know i actually like had to kind of pull over to the side of the concourse there and just sort of process the emotions and um and there was the beginning of of my feeling like I could call myself blind even with some vision and and think about myself as having something in common with other blind people.
0: You also spent a couple of weeks at a radical blindness training
1: center in Colorado. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean if going to the convention was was radical, I mean that was that was doubly so. You wear vision occluding sleep shades. Um, you know, like sleep masks that you might see someone wearing on an airplane um, from eight a.m. Uh, to four p.m. every weekday, and and the the idea is that most blind people have some light perception, so you wear the shades in order to learn how to do things non-visually. And there's classes in cooking, there's braille, there's technology, the computer labs. There the, the computers have no monitors on them; they're just keyboards and speakers and and. PC towers. And the most exciting and important and challenging class is travel, cane travel. So you go out into, I, I, I went to Colorado, uh, the Colorado Center for the Blind, and you go out into Denver and you're crossing busy streets. You're making your way on the light rail and all of the staff and instructors are blind. So you're out there wearing sleep shades with a blind person and standing on the street corner, listening to the traffic. And, and they're saying, okay, when do you think it's safe to cross? And, and nothing gives you more confidence as a blind person than that kind of work.
0: I'm surprised to learn that this form of training is akin to what the Navy SEALs go through. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's not for everyone. I, I will say that. I think um, folks with with multiple disabilities have um, had a lot of trouble at, at centers like this because I do think they're built with a sort of macho attitude towards blindness that is incredibly empowering for a certain kind of blind person, but can be really troubling for others. So there is a Navy SEAL machismo to it, but, but I will say that for me, it it really transformed the way I approach and think about blindness and, and the skills that one needs as a blind person. The profoundly deaf develop a culture which, in its own way,
0: is very beautiful, and they're very proud of it. It's not simply signing; it's uh, it's more to it than that. And mm. they often see attempts to take their deafness away as a form of cultural genocide. Mm. Do you do you see any parallels in blindness?
1: That's a that's a tough question. I I do think that sign language is an important distinction, and that when you think about what makes a culture, language is such an integral part of that. And so, deaf culture is built on the edifice of sign, which is a full and complete language. Whereas blindness, hearing blind people, you know, are participating in verbal communication unimpeded, and I think that does create in fact i think it creates a weaker culture and i think that that's why there's not the same sort of blind universities or blind institutions that there are deaf that said i do think blind pride and and people who are proud of their blindness and wouldn't want to have their sight back is a legitimate and and actual experience but but i do think that there i have encountered less arguments from blind people fewer arguments from blind people that say i um i wouldn't take a cure if i had, if one came along to me
0: I'm going back to Oliver Sacks because I remember Oliver describing people who'd been blind for decades getting their sight back mm-hmm. and then wishing they hadn't turning mm-hmm. the lights off and wandering around the house yes. in the dark again or being yes. horrified and fearful
1: of what they did see. Yes. Yes, I mean I think there are cognitive reasons for that. You know, I think I think if you just imagine how you've lived your life you know you've 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 got things dialed in right and then suddenly to make the assumption that that having sight restored is gonna be the experience of what a person who's grown up with sight would be is is a fallacy. You know, I think if you think about it, um you know if you I think I think adapting to blindness is illuminating in the same way. Like I think when people do disability simulations and they just they close their eyes and say oh this was this is what blindness would be like um, you know, it's very destabilizing versus the experience of being blind for years at a time, and you learn to inhabit the world in that way. And so the the brain takes a long time to adapt and to adjust. Have
0: there been other parts in this uh, country of the blind where you've found a sense of joy or contentment? John Hull said he did. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think learning braille for all of its challenges has been a really incredible experience for me just, just um, i mean on a basic level giving me the, the feeling of of reading print again really you know like lying in bed with a with a book of poetry and braille is such a lovely experience and 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 it's sort of marvelous to me that i can read with my fingertips and you know do close readings like even closer than with my eyes perhaps you quote james joyce yeah, Joyce had a lot of eye problems late in his life, and he wrote a letter to a friend, and uh, you know, if I'm paraphrasing him, he said something like, "You know, the world I'm losing is nothing. You know, there are, there are infinite worlds, uh, and and the visual is just is just one among many." And, and there's such bravado in that statement, but I, I think that there's truth in it as well because if I think about my experience of the world and what I love about. Being alive, you know, be exploring, exploring ideas, exploring consciousness, vision is just one piece of that, and I think it's tremendously overprivileged in in our culture. And you
0: point out that while you've had to grieve what's being lost, you've found joy in what remains.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, thinking about John Hull, his book is a masterpiece. It's also a very, very difficult book to read for someone who's going blind, and I've had conversations about Hull. A lot with other folks who are in my position because he's so frank about that grief, and I think it's the value of his book is the the fact that he doesn't stay there and that he he brings you along that journey and shows you that on the other side of the grief there is tremendous and unbroken joy. I think that's an important point to make too. It's not like joy in spite of. It's not it's not joy you know that that transcends the suffering. It's like any grief. You realize that you know one can be whole even even beyond the experience. Of- I, I suddenly remember John describing its impact on
0: his sexual desires, not hmm. having visual stimuli. He felt yes. less sexual desire. He felt less appetite when he didn't see food. You know, it right. is pervasive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I actually I quote those passages in my book from Hall about desire, both both sexual and and just you know the, for hunger. And uh, I had some blind folks read a draft of my book, and and they really responded negatively to that. And they said, you know, what are you what are you talking about? I uh, I have plenty of sexual desire. I have plenty of you know I, I, I hankering for a sandwich and i think the idea with 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 hull's book is that it's really a chronicle of that grieving process and i think at the at the beginning when one has lived as a sighted person and then suddenly has to contend with sexual desire or you know desire for anything visually stimulated um as a blind person it's a radical loss and it's a radical reorientation but for my friends who have been blind for decades reading that you know they've moved on they've moved past that if they ever were you know one friend has been blind her whole life and so the idea of not having sexual desire or desire for for food is absurd to them and yes, so i think it's course. important to yeah. to 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 think about blindness in its in its all of its multitudes we're
0: going to be talking to Selena Mills later about uh, Western obsession with curing blindness and uh, mm. some of the problems that arise from, uh, well, from that mentality. Is that something you've wrestled with as
1: well? Yeah, I have. I have, and even since writing this book, now I get emails from people saying, "Hey, I'm I'm in this clinical trial and it's going well, or it's going poorly," and you know, I'm, I'm sort of forced to think about it, and and. To be frank i don't want to think about it i find thinking about cure really destabilizing and because it because it creates this this hope and you know I'm, I'm pinning my hopes on something and you know in the same way that the vision that i have i try to let go of i find it far more powerful to focus on increasing my braille reading speed and learning how to cook and travel non-visually than I do trying to cling to vision that I know is going away. And, and so if the cure comes along and they hand me a pill, sure, I'll <laughs> knock it back. But well, until uh, then... Of it course, it I'm may not quite,
0: be yeah. a pill, but such extraordinary things are happening in the digital and AI world. It is possible that you will be offered, well,
1: a, a form of pill, Sure. Right. Yeah. Like wearing the Apple vision pro goggles that, you know, can, can tell me what what's in front of me to, to the finest detail, you know, and I'll wear those goggles far more readily than I will it take place in an experimental clinical trial where they're injecting long needles, as you say, at the, at the beginning of, uh, of this segment uh, into your eyeballs. I, I find the the assistive technology far more palatable than I do the sort of <laughs> biological interventions. <laughs> okay.
0: Now, Andrew, after this journey, what are some of the the big realizations you've you've come to about blindness that uh, that you hope readers and now your listeners will appreciate? I
1: think the the primary one is a bit paradoxical sounding because, you know, the book is the country of the blind and it's all about this radically different experience of inhabiting the world. And yet I think one of my conclusions is that it's the same world. And, you know, when I was wearing sleep shades and, and really immersing myself in full blindness, I had this, this revelation that I'm still me, I'm still here. And I think that people really, if you'll forgive the pun, lose sight of the reality that blind people are just people. And it sounds utterly obvious, but... But people just again and again evince the fact that they don't understand this, that a blind person is somehow an alien, is somehow having this tremendously radically different experience. But if you talk to them, lo and behold, they're a person just like you going about their lives with the same same peccadillos. Well, I, I must say that you're one of the more interesting aliens
0: I've talked to lately, <laughs> Andrew. So uh, Likewise. Thanks, Likewise. Thanks, thanks for that. My guest has been Andrew Leland, who's uh, the author of the Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight published by Penguin Press. Is there a braille version of your book?
1: Uh, there is. There Today, these days, there are electronic refreshable braille displays. So one can just point one of those machines at, at my text, at oh the digital text, and read it in braille oh, that way. Okay. Thanks for that, yes. Andrew. Yeah, and thank you again for having me. It was a pleasure.